Our second reading this morning comes from the book of Acts in the fifth chapter, verses 27 to 32. And this finds Peter and some of the apostles standing before the Jewish authorities, uh, not dissimilarly from the way that we heard Jesus stand before some of the Jewish authorities just a couple weeks ago. When they had brought them, they had them stand before the council. The high priest questioned them, saying, We gave you strict orders not to teach in this name, yet here you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching, and you are determined to bring this man's blood on us. But Peter and the apostles answered, We must obey God rather than any human authority. The God of our ancestors raised up Jesus, whom you had killed by hanging him on a tree. God exalted him at his right hand as leader and savior that he might give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. And we are witnesses to these things. And so is the Holy Spirit whom God has given to those who obey him. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Amen. Well, this morning I want to set up a scenario for you that's actually pretty common in my life. Um, and people who know me well might get a chuckle out of this, but it's pretty true of me. On a fairly regular basis, I have a meeting or a conversation that gets me really excited about something. Maybe I read a book or an article, and it gets me thinking about some new project, and I become convinced that I can have this great effect within my sphere of influence. I'm hopeful that most, if not all of you, can relate to that experience on some level. I've had students at this church come to me fired up about starting a gay-straight alliance at their school. I've seen folks in this congregation catch a vision for a project or a mission that they're really passionate and excited about, and they light up with enthusiasm. And I know this happens in all sorts of other areas of our lives as well. Maybe we're planning a wedding or planning a family reunion, or we're starting an exciting new job, or we've just come up with an awesome topic for our capstone project or a master's thesis. I hope that you're all holding some experience in mind that evokes this kind of enthusiastic, empowered feeling. And I want you to just hang on to that for just a second. Because there's another side to this coin, and this is one with which I am also all too familiar. That's the moment when reality sets in. It's the moment for me when I sit down at my desk and I see the pile of papers and a screen full of emails and a big long to-do list and the light flashing on my phone because three people have left me voicemails that I haven't checked and I'm sorry if that's ever been you. Faced with that reality, I reflect on my grand idea, maybe of just a few moments earlier, and I find myself thinking, oh, this is gonna be so much harder than I thought. I'm willing to bet that each of you can also bring to mind a moment like that. Times you've been up against it. These are the moments of sitting and staring at a laptop with a big paper or project due and thinking, I honestly don't know if I can get this done. Sometimes life events bring us to that point. An illness in the family, or the death of a loved one, or a medical situation that we're facing can feel like more than we can bear, and attending to all of the details and the arrangements around it feels almost impossible. The feeling can be triggered by a deadline at work or a looming exam, but whatever the cause, I think we all know those emotions. Being overwhelmed, overmatched, under-equipped, and out of time. I'm gonna ask you to just sit with that feeling for a second.
Strange as it may seem to say this, I think it is into that second set of emotions that we have to plunge this morning. As Christians, we celebrate Easter three days after Good Friday for symbolic reasons, but I think we would do well to settle into the idea that Easter is actually a season that we are going to celebrate all the way up until Pentecost on May 15th. And celebrate might not be exactly the right word. It might be more true to say that Easter is a season with which we have to wrestle until Pentecost on May 15th. Let's think about that for a second. Pentecost is the Sunday on which we will read about the Holy Spirit rushing in amongst believers. It's the founding moment that we recognize in the Christian church. But it takes us a few weeks to get there, which suggests to me that we have a little work to do in the meantime. What might this Easter process be that's supposed to occupy us for the next five weeks? I recently had dinner with one of the doctors who worked on the team that did that uterine transplant at the Cleveland Clinic. You might have read about it in the news. It was kind of all over. And she shared a lot of interesting information. She talked to me a little bit about the team that worked on that. And one of the things that was striking to me was that the lead doctor on that project had been working specifically on that operation for over 15 years to prepare for that moment. She said it, and I found myself thinking, 15 years? Good grief. That is a really long time to work on one thing. I don't know about you, but I admire a person who has the focus and the passion and the dedication to remain committed to one singular project for 15 years. I think it's easy for us to lose sight of just how many years it took followers of Jesus to figure out what it was going to mean to be a disciple. The two readings we heard this morning give us some insight into that project, but they come from very different communities. Our first reading this morning came from the book of Revelation, and anytime we talk about books of the Bible, especially this one, we're dealing with some incomplete information. But scholars believe that the book of Revelation was written toward the end of the reign of the Roman Emperor Domitian. He was known for being a nasty and uh, vengeful emperor around 95 CE. So think about that date, 95 CE. We believe Jesus was crucified around 30. So we're talking about some time that's passed. Without going into too much detail, Revelation is what we call an apocalypse. And that's a specific literary genre that developed in the Jewish community. These apocalypses often arose at times when the community felt that God was being a little too slow at bringing about any meaningful action or an answer to their prayers. And so these apocalyptic narratives tended to employ a lot of symbolic and figurative language to describe an alternate future that the author believed was imminent. Revelation was written at a time when this fledgling community of Christians was experiencing persecution, and it's a good reminder to us that the process of understanding life as a follower of Jesus was often a difficult and confusing one. We know that Paul, writing considerably early, maybe 20 or 25 years after Jesus' death, expected Jesus to return and usher in God's kingdom in his own lifetime. And with the writing of Revelation, it's now 20 or 25 years later, and folks are starting to get a little impatient with the delay and with the suffering that they're experiencing in the meantime. We don't know exactly who wrote this book, but it wasn't someone who had physically followed Jesus around. This was someone who had participated in that Jewish Christian community after Jesus' life and death. And some 60 years later, the community was still waiting for a solution to the problems of pain and suffering 
and persecution. The author was, therefore, prepared to suggest an alternate vision for what that future might look like. Let's step away from Revelation for a minute and take a look at our other reading for this morning. The book of Acts, and this is important for us to know, is a continuation of the narrative that we read in the Gospel of Luke. Though the writer was traditionally thought to have been a physician by the name of Luke, we don't have a lot of evidence for either of those assertions. And scholars also speculate that the author may not have actually been an eyewitness to the accounts that he describes, because we believe that Luke Acts was also written around the same time as Revelation. So we're talking about 90 or 95 CE. So here again, I want you to try to put this in perspective. With this Luke-Acts narrative, as with Revelation, you have an author striving to make sense of 60 years that have passed without Jesus coming back and without the coming of God's kingdom on earth. In the passage that we heard this morning, Peter and some of the other apostles have been dragged before the Jewish authorities who beg them to stop teaching in the name of Jesus. These authorities are warning these followers that if you keep teaching, this is unpopular and you're going to bring down the full force of the Roman authorities on our head. This is a don't rock the boat kind of moment. But Peter responds boldly, pointing out that Jesus' message was always politically controversial, but that Jesus' murder couldn't stop the movement of his followers. Peter gives a powerful testimony to the ongoing effect of Jesus' presence and ministry to and with his early disciples. So I want to suggest to you that at this moment, at the end of the first century, it's as though the entire Christian movement takes this collective deep breath and says, this business of following Jesus, it's going to be harder than we thought. The authors of Revelation and Luke Acts paint us two very different pictures of what discipleship looks like and what our role will be in bringing about God's kingdom. This morning, in light of these two readings, I just want to briefly suggest to you four principles that I think we need to embrace in relation to our life as a community following Jesus on this side of the resurrection. First of all, God isn't going to clean it all up for us. Jesus' followers testified to Jesus' ongoing presence with them after the resurrection. They testified to the reality of his risen life and presence in the community. And we give that same testimony today. But I think sometimes we get sidetracked by this underlying belief that if we just pray enough or bury our heads in the sand enough or hope enough, that God's going to sweep in and just even everything out for us. We certainly see that kind of thinking throughout the narrative in Revelation. But I think the author of Luke Acts tells us something a little different. A story in which followers of Jesus recognize that if the world is going to change, it's going to be because they step up to the plate and do the work of being kingdom builders. They have to possess the courage to stand up for what's right when it's unpopular at best and in the face of considerable persecution at worst. They have to be the ones to spread the gospel to the ends of the earth and share the good news of God's unifying and redemptive love for all people. Many a famous theologian has been quoted as saying in one form or another, and I love this, the idea that without God, we cannot, but without us, God will not. Think about that. What if the future of God's kingdom actually depends on us. Second, 
The coming of God's kingdom isn't going to happen the way that we think. I would suggest to you this morning that we see some of our innate human tendencies come to bear in Revelation as they do throughout Scripture. We have a desire for revenge sometimes where I think God envisions mercy. We tend toward violence when we can't come up with another easy solution. And we're often inclined to trample down those that we label the others when it serves our own best interests. So often these human inclinations creep into the biblical text. In the passage from Revelation that Megan read this morning, you can hear that desire for vengeance and it's gonna play itself out in a lot of ways through that narrative in Revelation. When we allow ourselves to become overly certain about our own vision of God's kingdom, it almost always leads us down a pathway of exclusion and violence. Our short reading this morning from those opening verses of Revelation already conjures this notion of suffering for people who don't get it right. Verse 7 talks about all the tribes of the earth wailing, this idea that God will punish people who don't get it. It's expanded in certain parts of Revelation, and I would argue that it paints a picture of God's kingdom that really isn't in keeping at all with what Jesus lived out in his life and ministry. And I would argue that even the early church struggled to resist the temptation to fall into their old way of thinking, a way of thinking that involved Jesus as a violent conqueror and an emperor of the sort that they were used to around them. But the disciples of whom we read in Luke-Acts consistently chose nonviolence and martyrdom rather than insurrection or political power or the old way of doing things. In the end, almost every one of them laid down his or her life for the gospel, a bold testimony to Jesus' ministry of nonviolence and inclusive love. So we don't know what God's kingdom is going to look like exactly, but what we do know is that we have a responsibility to work faithfully toward the coming of that kingdom. The third principle this morning is that it is going to be harder than we thought. And I would suggest that this might be the most important principle of all. This process of being a follower of Jesus is hard. It calls us to places that are radically outside our existing comfort zones. It calls us to see the world in an entirely new way. The author of Revelation envisions a sort of magical scenario in which everything is fixed quick, wrongs are righted, people who have been put down are raised up, and those who have been oppressors are smashed. It's convenient, but it isn't the path that Jesus describes. Throughout his ministry, Jesus describes a path that will be difficult and one that will require us to give up our sense of privilege and entitlement in order to become the servant of all. This idea of servanthood doesn't mesh very well with our American ideals of individualism and personal success, but it is clearly modeled throughout that narrative in Luke and Acts. The early church lived communally. They shared their resources and they supported each other. There are actually modern-day Christian communities who have taken on this challenge. Most notably, uh, you might read about Shane Claiborne's Red Letter Christian Community. It's a fascinating uh, group to learn a little bit about. And that might be a little radical for us here, but a good litmus test for us might be to stop once in a while and ask ourselves if we feel really challenged and stretched by our call to discipleship. When was the last time that the call to respond to the gospel made you feel really uncomfortable or overwhelmed or downright afraid? If your answer is never, or I can't remember, then I think we have the opportunity in the strength of this community to take another look and see where Jesus might be calling us to go deeper in our relationship with God.
The fourth and the last principle this morning is awesome news. At the beginning of this message, I asked you to envision a couple of scenarios. That great excitement when you have an awesome idea or a project or something that you're really enthusiastic about, and then that hit-the-wall feeling that you sometimes encounter when reality sets in. I want to ask you, though, right now to draw on one more life experience. I want you to go back to one of those times when you felt that sense of futility or overwhelmed or I can't do it. And then I want you to think about that almost euphoric feeling that you experience. When you stick with it, you gut it out, you persist, and you finish the job. I hope that each of us can call to mind a time in our lives when we have been an overcomer, when we have faced down a huge task and demonstrated that with God's help, we are capable, we are dedicated, we are strong. Jesus invites us to bring that kind of character to our walk as disciples. And I believe that God promises us an even greater sense of joy and fulfillment when we see the kingdom being built around us in small ways. As United Methodists, we are committed to the making and maturing of disciples of Jesus Christ for the transformation of the world. That's our mission statement as United Methodists. The process of discipleship, though, has to start with each one of us. We are the people called to grow and follow Jesus so that the world might change. These five weeks before Pentecost, I believe, represent a profound moment when each of us gets to decide once again if we're prepared to answer that call. We are God's answer to the world's cry for compassion. So I ask you this morning, are you prepared to venture out on this long, difficult road that leads from an empty tomb into a fuller, deeper understanding of what it's going to mean to be a follower of Jesus? I can tell you that God isn't going to clean it all up for us, and it's not going to happen in the way that we expect, and it isn't going to be easy. But I can promise you this as well. The knowledge that you are an active part in building God's kingdom is a reward better than anything you could have imagined. God promises the presence and power of the Holy Spirit to all those who follow this call to discipleship. Empowered by God's Spirit, each one of us has the opportunity to be a kingdom builder every day, whatever the cost. Amen. <laughs>